This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. We're going to run long today, but I have a case to make, and the issue behind it is too important for a casual explanation. One of my favorite movies is the musical 1776. In it, John Adams sings a lament that has great relevance to our lives today, certainly here in the United States and even across the border in Canada. The song reflects Adams' frustration with a Continental Congress that was given to arguing rather than to acting. Because it was much too hot in Philadelphia in early summer 1776, arguing was simply too taxing so the delegates did absolutely nothing. In fact, sometimes they didn't even bother to show up. Says Adams in the song, as he surveys the empty room, quote, How quiet, how quiet the chamber is. How silent, how silent the chamber is. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Does anybody see what I see? Unquote. That's a question we need to ask today, and especially of the U.S. Congress. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Does anybody see what's there in front of us to see? From what I can see, my answer would be in the negative. No one is there. No one cares. No one sees what's right there in front of them to see. And so the topic for this week is Jewish law and what it says about the need for leaders and individuals to take responsibility for the world around them. We've actually talked about this in previous podcasts. We'll review some of that material here. First, though, let me set out the issue with several examples. Example number one. On Thursday, the federal government raised the national fire preparedness level to five. That's the highest level there is. This is the earliest that the threat level was raised this high in the last 10 years. In theory, the annual wildfire season in the United States each year begins in May and lasts through late October, but last year's record-breaking wildfire season lasted into late December, and December itself saw a record-setting 735,000-plus acres destroyed in that month alone. The 2020 record, however, is already on track to be broken this year. As of this podcast, we've seen more than 1 million acres of land in the western United States destroyed by 68 large fires currently burning across 12 states. And the season has only just begun. Just how bad is it out there? Remember that last year was a record-breaking one for California wildfires. As of this point last year, 38,889 acres had been destroyed by those wildfires. As of this point this year, fires have already burned 142,477 acres in California. That's more than 103,000 acres burned so far this year, more than were burned last year in California alone. Fires, of course, don't check the calendar before breaking out. 
From January 1st through July 14th, the United States has suffered through 34,216 fires. Compare that to the same period in 2020, when there were 27,941 fires. Or to 2019, when there were 22,507 fires from January 1st through July 14th. The chief culprit is climate change, which, according to California Institute for Water Resources scientist Faith Kearns, is, quote, a threat multiplier. We have always had fires in the West. The landscape is in many ways forged in fire. But the intensity of the fires we're seeing now, that some of these fires are happening so early in the summer, those things are definitely concerning, unquote. For the scientists and ecologists who have been warning about hotter heat waves and drier droughts that help fuel these fires, the situation, quote, can be really demoralizing and very frustrating, unquote, according to Kearns. She added, quote, maybe this year will finally be the one to heighten our sense of just how vulnerable we are, but that remains up in the air, unquote. It does remain up in the air because people on the conservative side of the political divide of all stripes and parties don't believe climate change, global warming, is real, much less a real threat. What we're seeing is nothing more than the natural cycle. The annual average of worldwide land surface temperature has been steadily rising from 1910 on proves nothing to the people who make this claim. These people also ignore the fact that it rains a lot more these days than in the past. That's because the sun heats the earth, water evaporates into the clouds, and the clouds burst. The hotter the planet becomes, the more rain will fall. But the naysayers in Congress and elsewhere still sit on their hands and do nothing because, as they say, quote, there is no convincing evidence, unquote, to support climate change as a threat to the planet. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Does anybody see what's there in front of us to see? Example number two. Apropos of all those raindrops falling on our heads. Global warming is also seen as one of the main culprits for the longer, more violent period of tropical storms we've seen in recent years. There are 26 letters in the English alphabet, and storm names begin with the letter A, all the way through letter Z, if needed. In 2020, all 26 letters were used. And then the Greek alphabet had to be used for Storm 27 onward. That's only the second time that Greek letters had to be added to the list of storm names. This year so far, Tropical Storm Anna hit 10 days before the official start of the 2021 Atlantic hurricane season making 2021 the seventh consecutive year in which a tropical storm formed before the official start of the season on June 1st. Anna, in fact, set a record of its own because it formed in an area where no tropical storms had ever been seen before in the month of May. Since Anna, we've seen Bill, Claudette, Danny, and Elsa, and now Tropical Storm Felicia is likely to become a hurricane today if it hasn't already become one. According to Yale University's Climate Connections website, at least five factors are responsible for the increase in Atlantic-named storms, 
and all five are climate-related. One factor in particular is, quote, human-caused global warming, which has increased sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic and caused atmospheric circulation changes beneficial to tropical cyclone formation, unquote. As the magazine National Geographic explained it, warm water acts as fuel for hurricanes and can lead to a process called rapid intensification, meaning that a storm's maximum wind speed can increase by at least 35 miles per hour in less than a day. Eight of 2020's storms underwent this rapid intensification over the warm waters of the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. It can very quickly turn a tropical storm into a hurricane and a normal hurricane, if there is such a thing, into a major hurricane. This is a fact. 97% of the scientists who work in the field of climate science and who publish papers on the topic believe that global average temperatures have increased during the past century and that human activity is a significant contributing factor. 97% of the scientists say this. Not so, say the naysayers in Congress and outside. For example, we have this from a private conservative nonprofit that calls itself the Oregon Institute of Science and Medicine. Here's what it had to say, quote, There is no convincing scientific evidence that human release of carbon dioxide, methane, or other greenhouse gases is causing or will, in the foreseeable future, cause catastrophic heating of the Earth's atmosphere and disruption of the Earth's climate, unquote. Think about it. 97% of the scientists who work in the field of climate science does not rise to the level of convincing scientific evidence. The conservative politicians of all stripes and parties say, Amen. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Does anybody see what's there in front of us to see? Example number three, the coronavirus pandemic. The Delta variant, one of the four so-called variants of concern, according to the World Health Organization, has become dominant here. And just when it looked like we might be turning the COVID-19 corner, the opposite appears to be happening. Added to that is the variant waiting in the wings, the Lambda variant, which the World Health Organization calls a variant of interest. Lambda has been around for almost a year. It was first detected in Peru last August and is now spread to 29 other countries, including the United States, which has registered nearly 670 Lambda infections since January 20th. South of our border, the Lambda variant has shown up in Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, and Mexico. Cases have also been reported in Germany, Spain, Israel, France, Egypt, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, Italy, Canada, among others. And Lambda, by the way, is not alone. The World Health Organization has six more variants of interest that it's keeping an eye on, on top of Lambda and on top of the four variants of concern, Delta included. Right now, of course, the focus here is on the Delta variant. New York City's new daily case average, for example, is up 32% over the last seven days, 
compared with the seven-day average for the four weeks prior. And some New York City neighborhoods are actually experiencing a significantly marked increase in new COVID cases. The reason, say Big Apple health officials, is the low vaccination rates in those neighborhoods, coupled with the resistance of many people to wear masks and to socially distance from others. As New York City's health commissioner, Dr. Dave Choksi, said earlier this week, quote, that's because we have unvaccinated individuals, particularly younger people, who remain unvaccinated, unquote. On the other coast, the Los Angeles Health Department on Monday reported 1,059 new COVID-19 cases, representing a significant increase since June. Nearly all the new cases are among people who haven't been vaccinated, according to Barbara Farrar, L.A. County's Director of Public Health. Said Farrar, quote, Over 99% of the COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths we're seeing are among unvaccinated individuals, unquote. She also said this, quote, Getting fully vaccinated is the way we protect you, your family, and our community from COVID-19 and the Delta variant, unquote. As bad as that sounds, New York City and Los Angeles are doing better than some other regions. The overall rate of COVID-19 cases in the United States is up 102% from just last week. 102% higher than just last week. Arkansas itself is up 102%. Louisiana is up by 71%, while Nevada and Missouri are up by 52% all in just one week. Then there is Florida. This week, Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis' re-election campaign rolled out a new slogan for the 2022 election. Don't Fauci my Florida. Don't Fauci my Florida. That slogan appears on t-shirts and drink cozies his campaign is selling, The official campaign slogan is just as bad, Keep Florida Free. That slogan is on t-shirts, hats, bags, and on both red and blue drink coolers. The red drink coolers also carry a quote from Governor DeSantis, quote, How the hell am I going to be able to drink a beer with a mask on, unquote. That brilliant statement is also scheduled to appear on hats and t-shirts in the near future, but the Don't Fauci My Florida slogan is of special interest because it debuted this week, a week in which Florida's COVID-19 rates soared to the highest in the nation, up 149% from last week. According to the Washington Post this week, New coronavirus infection numbers had plummeted in Florida after vaccinations became widely available, but now the state is reporting daily cases that are nearly four times the national average. Worse, the state's latest COVID-19 death rate is almost double the national figure. Last year, as the Washington Post reported, DeSantis, quote, avoided statewide mask requirements even as leaders across the political spectrum embraced them amid growing evidence of their effectiveness. 
This spring, he suspended all virus-based local rules for businesses and individuals, unquote. DeSantis brags about it and is basing his re-election campaign on it, as his Keep Florida Free slogan makes clear. For example, while discussing the Florida budget some weeks ago, DeSantis said his state's rosy financial outlook wouldn't have been possible, quote, if we had followed Fauci, instead we followed freedom, unquote. Florida, of course, has among the lowest vaccination rates in the country. Republicans in Congress and state houses have also been on this DeSantis freedom train wreck, jumping on something President Biden said on July 6th, quote, we need to go community by community, neighborhood by neighborhood, and oft-times door-to-door, literally knocking on doors, unquote. The purpose of this door-to-door effort is purely educational. Thanks to conservative politicians, media outlets, Fox News, Tucker Carlson especially, and even some evangelical Christian clergy, there's a ton of misinformation a ton of fake news, if you will, about the safety of the available vaccines. The GOP jumped all over that remark. Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobbert, for example, actually likened that effort to things Adolf Hitler and his Nazis did. Greene quickly tweeted this absurdity, quote, Biden pushing a vaccine that is not FDA-approved shows COVID is a political tool used to control people. People have a choice. They don't need your medical brown shirts showing up at their door ordering vaccinations. You can't force people to be part of the human experiment, unquote. Never mind that the vaccines have been approved by the FDA, at least for emergency use, and we're in that emergency. Never mind that the vaccines are not part of any human experiment, and aren't intended as a political tool designed to control anybody. Never mind that no one is being ordered to take the vaccine. The most outrageous comment was calling the people going door-to-door medical brown shirts. Hitler's brown shirts, also known as his stormtroopers, were the ones mainly responsible for bringing him to power and keeping him there. Before Biden made his remarks, by the way, similar public awareness campaigns to combat misinformation about the vaccine were already being run by local health departments and community groups. Green didn't stop at that tweet, however. In a speech to about 500 seniors a week ago Thursday, she not only encouraged her elderly, most vulnerable listeners to resist taking the vaccine, she urged them to support a bill she introduced in April which she called the We Will Not Comply Act. Quote, It gives you permission to tell Biden's little posse that's going to show up at your door, you know, that intimidate you. They probably work for Antifa by night, and then they come and intimidate you to take the vaccine by day. Well, you get to tell them to get the hell off of your lawn, unquote. The irony, of course, is that only three months ago, Green was tweeting comments like this one, quote, we only have the vaccine because of President Trump and Operation Warp Speed, unquote. Now she says the vaccines are human experiments meant as a political tool Biden is using his brown shirts to control people. 
You can't make this stuff up. Lauren Bobbert expanded on Green's comments. She belittled the medical professionals who are urging people to get vaccinated, calling them needle Nazis. Needle Nazis. And, like Green, referring to the vaccines as experimental. She ended her tweet by asking, quote, Did I wake up in communist China? Unquote. Talk about mixed metaphors. Then there's GOP Representative Madison Cawthorn. He was probably the most outrageous of Republican legislators responding to Biden. He had this to say, quote, Democrats are going to go door to door to every home in America to force vaccinate people, unquote. And he then suggested that this was a dry run of sorts for when they, quote, show up to take away people's guns and Bibles, unquote. Several Republican governors chimed in as well including Governor Mike Parson, he whose hospitals are becoming overwhelmed with COVID cases. He tweeted that he doesn't want any government employees knocking on doors to urge people to get vaccinated. These are all lies, precisely what the door-to-door education campaign is meant to overcome. But these lies hold the rug out from any chance that this effort can succeed. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Does anybody see what's there in front of us to see? Example number four, the collapse of that apartment complex in Surfside, Florida. Back in 1996, an engineering report said that Champlain Tower South was in need of waterproofing and structural repairs in the parking garage. And that was just 15 years after the building went up in the first place. That kind of damage shouldn't have occurred so soon, but it did. The recommended work supposedly was done, but engineers now say that work did nothing to prevent further deterioration of Champlain Towers South. That the work had to be done at all, however, should have been a warning bell. In 2018, a structural field survey report found, quote, Abundant cracking and spalling of varying degrees in the concrete columns, beams, and walls of the ground floor parking garage. Unquote. Other major structural damage, as the report termed it, appeared in the concrete structural slabs on the pool deck, and some of the waterproofing work that was done in parts of the tower itself was faulty. In 2018, the cost to repair the structural damage was estimated at over $9 million. Fixes for the garage, entrance, and pool deck alone would have cost more than $3.8 million, so the repairs were never made. A follow-up report just a few months ago said the damage had gotten much worse since 2018, and repairs would now cost $16.2 million. The Condominium Association's president, Gene Wodnitschke, acknowledged the deteriorating situation in an April 9th letter she sent to residents. Back in 2018, she said, the engineers had found a, quote, major error, unquote, in the building's design, including crumbling concrete columns in the garage area. She also told residents that the engineers in 2018 had predicted that Failure to address these errors, quote, caused the extent of the concrete deterioration to expand 
exponentially, unquote. And so it did, as Wodnitschke wrote in her letter, quote, the observable damage such as in the garage has gotten significantly worse, unquote. She also wrote that, quote, when you can visually see the concrete cracking, that means that the rebar holding it together is rusting and deteriorating beneath the surface. When performing any concrete restoration work, it is impossible to know the extent of the damage to the underlying rebar until the concrete is opened up. Oftentimes, the damage is more extensive than can be determined by inspection of the surface, unquote. In other words, the situation is probably much worse than what only the eyes can see, she wrote. Things are probably much worse beneath the surface of the building. Still, the condo board did nothing to repair the damage or even to do some experimental digging to see how bad things really were. The condo board sat on its hands from 2018 until the building collapsed on June 24th. Local and county officials were well aware of both the 2018 report's findings and the follow-up report earlier this year, and they were also aware of what happened in 1996. And they also sat on their hands. No one in government thought it was important or necessary to intervene and order the repair work to be done. Not in 2018 and not in early 2021. Had they even begun the repair work, the building likely would have been evacuated before June 24th. As for holding anyone legally responsible for the deaths of over 100 people, legal experts say that Florida law makes that almost impossible. That's because Florida's laws relating to building safety heavily favor real estate interests. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Does anybody see what's there in front of us to see? As you've heard on these podcasts time and again, starting with the Torah, Jewish law takes responsibility very seriously. The so-called parapet law in Deuteronomy, for example, requires that when building a house, a person must build a parapet around the roof, quote, that you should not bring any blood upon your house if any man falls from there, unquote. Rabbinic decisions make clear that the parapet law is subject to the broadest interpretation possible. Thus, we're told in the Talmud that it's not even permissible to keep a damaged ladder in our homes because someone might inadvertently use the ladder and be injured, or worse. Maimonides, the Rambam, explains that the parapet law includes, quote, everything that is inherently dangerous and could in normal circumstances cause a person to die, unquote. In other words, every effort must be extended to prevent an unintentional death. Other commentators also note, as Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch did in the late 19th century, that the Torah's parapet law even requires, quote, local civil authorities to intervene to have anything at all which might be dangerous removed from a person's premises, unquote, despite the fact that the Torah elsewhere insists on an individual's right to privacy. That's certainly not what we saw in the Surfside building collapse. Not the condo board, not any government agency moved to protect the people in that building. Judaism also takes health matters of all kinds very seriously. 
Life takes precedence over almost everything else. Just the mere suspicion that life may be in danger, may be in danger, not is in danger, is enough to override the Torah's rules. The Torah even insists on people who may have developed infectious diseases be quarantined until it's clear that they're not contagious. In other words, Torah law requires taking vaccines, wearing masks, and social distancing in the face of COVID-19, but that's not what we're seeing, and it's not what some of our leaders are saying or advocating. As for protecting the environment, to this day, there are no laws as stringent as the Torah's laws, and those laws go back 3,500 years. Those laws ban water pollution, air pollution, and odor pollution. Torah law also bans the needless destruction of anything that's useful to any living creature, human or otherwise. Try telling that to the naysayers who deny what's happening to our planet and take no responsibility. Truth it is that each of us individually are responsible for observing these laws, but our leaders are even more responsible because they're our leaders for one reason only to provide for the safety, security, and well-being of the people they lead. We get this from the so-called King's Law in Deuteronomy. Here's what it says. Quote, When he is seated on his royal throne, he shall have a copy of this Torah written for him on a scroll by the Levitical priests. Let it remain with him and let him read in it all his life, so that he may learn to revere God to observe faithfully every word of this Torah, as well as these laws. Thus he will not act haughtily toward his fellows, or deviate from this commandment to the right or to the left, unquote. That this law applies to all leaders of a people, male or female, by whatever title they may have, at any time in history, including today, is clear and inescapable. As the late 13th century Talmudist Rabbi Menachem ben Salman Hamiri put it, Old King's Law applies at all times, in every generation, and it attaches to the leaders of the time. A decade before the creation of the State of Israel, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, at the time the chief rabbi of the land of Israel, wrote that, quote, when a leader of the people is chosen to be responsible for all its needs after the manner of a king, with the consent of the public and the court, then he, or she for that matter, assuredly stands in the place of the king as to the laws of the state." Unquote. The king's law in the Torah isn't meant to empower a leader, but rather to impose limits on him or her, in that he or she can't legislate in ways inconsistent with Torah law. He or she can't use his or her position for personal gain, especially at the expense of his own people. And by personal gain is included playing up to a political base in order to get re-elected, even if doing so brings harm to the general population. Above all, the leader must see himself or herself as the leader over a nation of his or her equals, not just as leader of one faction over another. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org. www.shammai.org.
dot S-H-A-M-M-A-I dot O-R-G and email me, please. If you're fasting on Tisha B'Av, and I hope you are, have an easy fast. Remember, it begins Saturday night and lasts through an hour after sundown on Sunday night. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe.